In this episode of the Biohacking Secrets Show. And we did think that the leading cause of, of weight gain or, or obesity was a slow metabolism. So that was logical. And then we realized that that was all um, just mistaken assumptions on our research and doesn't matter at all. But so metabolism is this thing that is measured that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with how much weight you gain or lose. And therefore, largely in your day to day lives, is irrelevant to you unless you have some sort of uh, condition where it's either heightened or lower. There's a direct correlation between the amount of carbon dioxide that you're breathing in and your fatigue, lethargy, lethargy and, and hunger, um, headaches and concentration. Hey everyone, I know you'll enjoy the interview. If you'd like to learn more of my top biohacking secrets, get a free copy of my best-selling book called The Biohacker's Guide to Upgraded Energy and Focus for free at biohackersguide.com. It's over 500 pages of my top biohacks and I'll send it to you for free if you cover a small shipping cost. Get your free copy at biohackersguide.com. Brad Pilon, welcome to the show, buddy. Right, right as I drink the water. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting the whole time. You just perch. It's like when you're at a restaurant, the wait, waiter waitress comes, you're like, how's the food? And you go, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> I'm doing awesome. Thanks for having me, man. <laughs> awesome, man. I'm, I'm pumped. We're, uh, we're going to set the record straight on intermittent fasting, or at least make it simpler for a lot of people who simpler. may have yeah. already been using it, or even the people that don't know what it is. Let's start with them. What, yeah. For someone listening that doesn't know what intermittent fasting is, how, how do you explain it? All right, so we're going to take the words intermittent fasting and we're going to break them up a bit. Um, fasting is just the purposeful break from eating, right? So starving slash starvation is when you're not eating because you have no idea when you're going to eat again. And in my books, fasting is when you've got a fridge full of food, but you're purposely saying, I'm not going to touch it for a bit. So starvation, and, you don't have a choice. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> intermittent, we're just going to say that's a kind of a cool word, but it just means occasionally. So okay. occasionally taking a break from eating. That's all, all this intermittent fasting stuff and, and all the complexity that's being put in towards it. What we're really talking about, what I wrote like almost a 300 page book about is just an occasional break from eating. That's, nice. And we're going to, we're going to condense the, the, some of the best parts of that 300 page book down to like 20 minutes of you and I running down oh, yeah. fasting relating tangents. We may yeah. say the word, uh, autophagy or apoptosis or some exactly. weird stuff like that, but it's not, it's not really important. And we're going to, um, yeah. we're going to, we're going to talk like fourth graders for the most part. Exactly. So, um, and this is, this is presuming that someone's on a normal eating schedule of breakfast, lunch, dinner, when you say breaking, cause like, you know, I'm like, well, anytime I'm not eating, I'm by that definition fasting, right? <laughs> very true. Very true. Yeah. So this is a purposeful missing times when you would normally eat, whether it's main meals, whether it's snacks. Actually, one of the main benefits of fasting is, is just that, is learning when you're habitually eating, right? Because if you're around uh, food all day, every day, and you have free access to it, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you're never actually like truly hungry, you just hit points in time where you want to eat. Yeah. And so fasting for any period of time teaches you that difference. When you're sitting there going like, why? Like, you know, I'm, I'm hungriest like an hour and a half into my fast. Like I'm not even fasting yet, right? I'm still digesting, but I know I'm fasting. So I'm sitting there going like, and, and those, those lessons, it's lessons that when you're in certain places or with certain people or on certain car rides where you're just used to eating, 
And when you don't get to eat, that's when it gets to you. Learning that, it, it really helps with the rest of your eating. You, you can you can understand how fasting was so linked to spiritual practice with the yogis and, um, you know, in, in Ayurvedic uh, tradition and things, because it like when you can't distract yourself with food or entertain yourself with food or eat your emotions, it forces you to actually become aware of them. Exactly. And, uh, you'll notice like, I want food, but wait, I'm not hungry. Oh, I'm lonely. Oh, I want food, but wait, I'm not hungry. Oh, I'm bored. You know, you start making connections that like when we're just on autopilot, we don't make. Yeah. Oh, totally. I like my, um, my daughter when she was like six or seven sitting on a couch watching like Dora or something like that. And she's yeah. like, can I have a snack? I'm like, Briar, honey, you're, you're, we're having dinner in 20 minutes. Like, I'm actually making dinner right now. So like, okay. Like two minutes later, she's like, can I have a snack? I'm like, you just asked me. She's like, oh yeah. I'm like, are you hungry? She's like, no. Like, why are you asking for snacks? She's like, I don't know. And it's just habit. She's sitting in front of the TV, not doing anything. Yeah. She's just kind of rolling in her head. So I think it's kind of cool and paradoxical that you need to take a break from eating to become mindful about your eating. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. So someone um, who's maybe heard um, all of the industry dogma about how if you want to lose weight, you need to eat every two to three hours or six yeah. meals a day. And, you know, they've probably seen some uh, regurgitated form of that in every fitness magazine they've picked up, yeah. <laughs> you know, at, at Walgreens or the grocery store. What do you say to that person who's like, uh, won't my metabolism slow down? Isn't that bad for me? Oh, and I, you know, I, say I completely understand why you think that. I mean, it was, that was the prevailing logic, uh, especially in the sort of late 1980s and on. And it was based on, at the time, research, right? We, we took a large group of people and we asked them, hey, can you just remind us, tell us what you ate uh, last Tuesday. And they would tell us what we ate, they ate last Tuesday. And that, those are called food frequency questionnaires or 24-hour recalls. And that's how we kind of figured out how much people ate. Which and sounds on, incredibly unreliable. <laughs> yeah, but it's inexpensive, right? So it balances out. Right. And so that research taught us that um, people who are overweight or people who have obesity generally eat the same amount, if not less than lean people. So it must be their metabolism slowing down, right? Like that makes sense. So we kind of went on this, you got to keep your metabolism revving idea for a long time. And still we started using doubly, later, sorry, doubly labeled water, which is a way to also measure energy expenditure and realize, oh, uh, wait, so the people who are overweight and are being asked to remember and tell us what they ate and think that we're judging them based on what they're eating lied to us. Uh -huh. So, I mean, I would do the same thing, right? Like, it's like you're, you're sitting there across the, the, the table from a PhD or a PhD student, and they're like, so what'd you eat? I'm going to be like, dude, apples, <laughs> lot of berries. We did not have six donuts. <laughs> Tell you what I didn't eat. <laughs> yeah, so we, we spent a couple uh, decades really thinking that your metabolism shifted all over the place, right? And that like it could crash, it could come back up. And so that's where the idea came along where you're like, well, when you eat, your metabolism goes up, which is true. So just constantly eat and your metabolism is, is high always. The problem with that was that your metabolism is up because it takes energy to digest food. Yeah. So, but it never takes more energy than is in the food. 
So you're, you know, you're eating a hundred calories to boost your metabolism by 10 or 15 more so accurate, right? You're still kind of that extra 85 calories still counts. Right. So right. it was just a bunch of, you know, nutrition is still a young science and it was rushed. Right. So not only is it young, it's trying to pay catch up to the other sciences. So we make some mistakes with some generalizations, but we did think that if you ate every couple hours, it would rev your metabolism. And we did think that the leading cause of, of weight gain or, or obesity was a slow metabolism. So that was logical. And then we realized that that was all um, just mistaken assumptions on our research and doesn't matter at all. <laughs> so that's how we got to where we are now. So when you're saying metabolism, define, yeah. define metabolism for, cause you know, it's, it's a word that's used a lot, but it can get, as you said, like th this science can get quite complicated, especially when we start talking about thyroid hormones and insulin yeah. resistance and leptin resistance and all that. When, when you use the word metabolism, how do you define it? So we're, when I use it, um, as opposed to saying metabolic rate. So I'm talking about the activity in your body, all of the, um, chemical reactions, et cetera, that require uh, energy to take place, right? And your metabolic rate is sort of on a given time period, usually 24 hours, how much energy is, is being used, which is all a ridiculous proxy for weight loss, weight gain. Yeah. It really is, I mean, we'll go, we'll kind of tangent out here for a bit off of, off of fasting, but it is really ridiculous because we talk about calories, which is a measurement of energy, Right. Yeah. We're concerned about weight gain, but a calorie, you can't hold them. They don't have weight. Right. So, and believe it or not, we were not like fission reactors. Human bodies don't turn energy into matter or matter into energy. So you don't turn calories into fat and, and fat into calories. It's actually, um, Oh, carbon, really, right? So your food is mostly carbon. We're made of carbon. This fat roll around my stomach is like 97% carbon. <laughs> and I lose that carbon when I breathe out carbon dioxide. So literally, like right now as we're talking and I'm breathing, I'm like, there's like body fat, little bits of it everywhere, right? That's how you lose weight is through your breath. The really messed up thing is how we measure your metabolism. I would take you, I would put you into, well, basically mask you up and I would measure the amount of oxygen you're breathing in, the amount of carbon dioxide you're breathing out. So I'd know exactly how much carbon dioxide you're breathing out, which means I know exactly how much carbon you've lost, which means I know exactly how much non-water body weight you've lost. And I use that exact precise number to kind of guesstimate how many calories you've burnt. And I use that to guesstimate how much fat you've lost. So it really... That's why nutrition research is, is sometimes you just want to take your head and bash it against a desk, right? <laughs> we talk about energy because we're at, at the time when nutrition research was really kind of exploding, we, we were in the middle of a, a world war. So we were really concerned about, we're sending troops over there. How much energy do they need to do what they're doing? We, we didn't care if they were like, we don't want our troops ripped or jacked or obese or not. We just want to make sure they have enough energy. And that's why nutrition was so focused around the idea of energy. Literally, like, I need to feed you enough to go do the task I want you to do. Is that also why our, you know, recommended daily allowances are so much less than most people need? Because it's yeah. like, this will keep you alive. Yeah. I'm not going to pay for you to have any more food than you need while you're over there. I need the exact ration size that Anthony needs to go over and do that job. But it's, you're not going on vacation. It's so it's... 
if I can get you to do the same thing, if you can build me barracks over there for 2,000 calories as opposed to 3,000, and there's 100,000 of you, well, I'm saving money by only giving you 2,000 calories. I need to know the bare minimum food, protein, carbs, and fats I can give you to get that job done. But we don't think that, right? We don't think energy in terms of the loss of energy. Like imagine a marathon runner and you're like, She's like, she, she, let's say she, she's 20 meters yards away from the end zone and the finish line. And she's stumbling and like, there's nothing left, right? Like there's no energy for this person to make it across that line. None of us are like that in our day-to-day lives. We don't really care about energy. We just don't want to gain fat. Right. That's why this stuff is so confusing. It's because the actual study, like I don't care at all about calories in calories out not not one lick i care about matter in matter out whatever's i'm caring about the weight and the space it takes up on me I'm, I'm, yeah. right i'm not running a marathon i just want to look good when i take my shirt off <laughs> yeah so it's just the matter in matter out and that's what really messes up all this nutrition research just like you when you're like well, what exactly is metabolism and depending on who you're talking to like for me i just care about the movement of carbon around the body right i want the where it's being stored and when it's being released and, and how I can optimize the amount of fat I'm breathing out. But other exercise physiologists, they're like, no, I actually care about the energy because I work with a long distance cyclist and they need to be able to finish their tour de France or whatever. Right. So it's, it's very, it's almost two different studies of, of what metabolism is. So, but from our standpoint, what we're really talking about is, the energy used, which is a proxy for the amount of carbon that's left the body, which is a proxy for how much of that carbon was fat, and am I losing or gaining fat? Yeah, I think that's such an important point because, like, so many people now will will want to call out, "Oh, that's pseudoscience. That's bro science. This is snake oil." Show me a real clinical study, and and the more you learn about these things, the deeper you dive. Yeah, the more you realize we don't know shit. We're learning still. I mean, it's it's a young science, and we've made a number of mistakes. And unfortunately, so many people, everybody's interested in nutrition, right? Everybody's interested, which means the mistakes made nutrition research, whether it's carb versus fat or food frequency questionnaires or protein intake, they're all like they make the cover of Time magazine. Yeah. Other scientists don't have that, right? When they're like, hey, you know what? Turns out the way we are measuring – the load on the spine in a car accident is slightly off and we should use different stats for that. That's not like the cover of New York Times info. People are like, oh, well, shoot, what's the new equation we should use? And done, they move on, right? Yeah, or the, or the fact that like over 100,000 people died from taking Vioxx, which is more than a lot of the, the, the wars we've fought. Yeah. Somehow that gets buried. Like, it's no but, big deal. But everybody knows we, you know, we may or may have not messed up on the whole butter recommendation, right? So it's, <laughs> yeah. you really don't know, which again, right back to your, your whole viewpoint on this is you just kind of kind of try things out sometimes. Right. Because research, I mean, a lot of times, for instance, your research is done on um, protein. Great example. Uh, A lot of the research done out of McMaster, just down the street from me, is done on like 20-year-old male rugby players. Right. Mm -hmm. So it might not be applied as applicable, not not applicable, but as applicable to your 55-year-old desk jockey. Right. Yeah. Post-menopausal woman. 
Yeah, or protein research done in, let's say, the 70s or 80s, when your average protein intake per day was maybe 80 grams. But now protein is so up in the consciousness, and we're studying um, typically, you know, kids, 20-year-olds, maybe exercise physiology students, who normally would maybe have a higher protein intake just habitually in the 120 range, right? Well, now the degree of change in that protein research is different. So if I take a group of people who typically eat 80 grams and I give them an extra 30, you just disappeared on me. You did like a magic trick. <laughs> Sorry, I was ah, disaster. I was, to, I was trying to raise up the uh, standing desks. I was like hunched over because it wasn't uh, quite yeah, high it enough. It starts to blow your back. But yeah, so the percent change in protein intake is different. Yeah back in the 80s versus now. So all these things come into play where sometimes you just have to think that the research has good guidelines, right? Sometimes the research is really good and sometimes it's not so good, but you do kind of have to either become such an expert that even after a paper has gone through multiple peer reviews, has been published, has been read by hundreds of people, you have to be the one guy to be able to look at it and be like, oh yeah, but they used the wrong stats. Or you have to just trust the research is generally right and just be like, it's, it's probably right, but I'm going to always be a little cautious with what I read, right? Like, I'm always going to be, that's cool, but I'm going to see what works for me. And that's, that's yeah. that changes all the way from metabolism to here. But so metabolism is this thing that is measured that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with how much weight you gain or lose. And therefore, largely in your day-to-day lives is irrelevant to you unless you have some sort of... Uh, condition where it's either heightened or lower, right? So, and I like to use the example of, you know, anybody who's had a temperature, like a fever, you know, when I, I'm going to give the Canadian numbers, but like when your body temperature is up to like 102, 103, and you're laying in bed and you're like sweaty and you're lethargic and you can barely move, that's what a high metabolism feels like, right? So you want your metabolism optimized for sure. But I don't know if you really want like a massively elevated metabolism if that's what it feels like, right? So similarly, a very low or hypometabolism is also a medical condition and you feel that too. So you want optimal, but we make these quick assumptions as to what high and low means, right? So that skinny person who lives next door to you is not skinny because his or her metabolism is 150% of yours, right? Because you, you know they'd be a sweaty mess laying on the ground. Right, the heart bounding out of their chest. There's lots of other factors going on. So metabolism is important, obviously, but it's not the end game in terms of weight loss and how you look. Nice, and 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 I I would imagine that like even when we think we have all this stuff figured out, at least from a biochemistry standpoint, then we're going to be like, wait, there's there's some quantum biology involved here and there's electrons in this food and and we can speed up our metabolic rate by, you know, increasing our exposure to sunlight or like, you know, the earth and things. And then we're like, everything we thought we knew was wrong. (laughs) No, you just gave a great example. One of the big mistakes we do in science, which is oddly sound good science, is we separate the individual from the environment then we separate the component of the individual we're studying. We look at that, we change one thing and see what happens. And that's good science. But the unfortunate thing is, and I'm getting really like Taoist foo-foo here, but we're, I shouldn't use the word foo-foo, I'm just, we're the holistic, is you can't separate us out from our environment, right? So Exactly, yeah. The CO2 levels, what you breathe, like you pointed out, the sunlight, time spent outdoors, 
the stress of, um, you know, is the person you're studying going through a divorce? Yes, no. Are they happy? Are there uh, kids? Yeah. That all matters, right? There's so much at play that separating people out just and, and then separating a biomechanical pathway within one person and then saying that matters to everybody without looking at the whole of what's going on. Um, like to your point, it's just there's so much more to know about how that all works together. It's so, that's interesting. I'm thinking of an example, like someone that's in an unhappy marriage, right? And every time their significant other comes home, they're ragging on them, their cortisol spiking, you know, that's affecting their metabolism because their body's stressed. And, and then they go do a, a study on metabolic rate or something, and they walk into the, the, the facility or the laboratory and they're like, oh, thank God, I got a break from you know, my husband or my wife. Yeah. And those results will not replicate because you change their environment so so dramatically. Yeah, I've again completely anecdotal, and you know, plural of anecdotes isn't data and all that stuff. But uh, a friend of mine who went in to see his doctor constantly because he had developed IBS in his, his mid thirties. Yeah, and they couldn't find the cause, couldn't find the cause, and finally, like it just it must have been a reaction to something you're eating, right? Because everybody goes mind goes right to nutrition, and then his IBS went away after he admitted to the two year long affair he was having and then left his wife. So I'm like, well, do you think the stress of hiding your other complete life might've contributed to that? Right. Like, yeah. it's like, I, I know how my stomach feels when, when I've got money problems, let alone that kind of stuff going on. Right. So there's so much at play and so much we don't talk about and, and so much that influences our, I mean, instead of the word metabolism, say like physiology, yeah. so influence our physiology that, uh, it's just, it's really hard to pinpoint one thing. There is uh, a lot of research right now going on about people's time spent outdoors, right? Um, believe it or not, as, as much as we talk about global warming all the time, this, the air outside is still better than the air in your house, right? And then sunlight is, is good for you. So we've all this research showing that time spent outdoors is actually related to um, your mood and even weight loss, weight gain. But then we automatically write it off by saying, yeah, well, because they're outside, because they're probably being active, so it's activity level, right? Because we have our biases, and our biases are food and activity. Yeah. And nothing else matters, right? Food, yeah. activity, and that's it. But the truth is, you know, I'm not sure that we're, I'm going to use that old cliche of what we're meant to do and meant not to do. But let's just say that maybe me sitting at my desk indoors, no sunlight, high CO2 levels, hunched over a computer for 10 hours a day is probably not the best thing for my health. Right. And getting outside is probably better. So like to your point, there's just so much at play that you just do have to kind of play around with it. And when we were talking about like some of the things that influence physiology, um, what's the research you've seen in favor of intermittent fasting where you started saying, all right, wait, we don't need to eat six times a day, or we don't need to eat every two to three hours because this study is showing X, Y, Z. What's let's, let's run through some of the research that you saw where you had light bulbs going off about intermittent fasting and some of the benefits for, for someone who may still be a little skeptical. So I started my grad work with the basic plan of like, I'm just going to design the world's best diet, right? It's obviously going to be high protein. You're obviously going to eat every three hours, et cetera. So I'm going to start with studying what happens when you don't eat. I'm going to list all the horrible things that happen, right? Like if you don't eat every two or three hours, you're basically asking for death. And I'll go from there. So I start pulling papers. And I'm reading about fasting and, you know, not bad things are happening. And in fact, some good things are happening. 
so I do what I, you know, most people do when something conflicts with their preconceived notions. I just threw that one in the trash. I'm like, crap paper. <laughs> and I found another paper said the same thing. I'm like, crap paper. And then it got to the point where I'm looking at almost a half full trash can or I'm like, uh, hold on. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm being a bit biased here and I should go back and look at it. And so what I saw was a number of things. The, the obvious, most immediate thing is the weight loss, right? And we, we touched on how you lose weight already, right? Which is by breathing out, right? Every time you breathe out, a small amount of, just like that, uh, <laughs> non-water weight leads your body. Right. Can, can you explain that? Because when you said that earlier and I almost jumped in because I was like, what? Because that I'm not even aware. How, how do we lose weight by breathing? Let, blow my mind here. Okay. Dude, this is the best thing ever. I'm, I'm at a university. I'm giving a talk and I said that exact same thing. And I just watched the crowd go like, you know, you, you know, you're losing people. Yeah. So, and these are all like grad students, et cetera. It's like, okay, go, you guys know this. I'm like, where does the fat go when you lose weight? Like, no, you guys know this. This is like, you know, high school biology. Where's the fat go when you lose weight? And no one, like not one hand. I'm like, oh, okay. So fat is a beautifully designed chain of carbons, right? And these carbons are stackable. So which makes why fatty acids are so awesome. It is the best way possible to store excess carbon. Carbon from your food comes in. You need to store it somewhere. It typically goes into your body fat. And why do we need to store carbon? Oh, okay. If you have too much carbon, carbon's a thing, right? It's got weight. It's got a defined atomic weight. So not like a, I'm guessing at it. It's got a weight. You just can't have tons of carbon molecules and and structures floating around your blood, right? So sugar is a hydro, is a carbohydrate, right? So carbons, Uh fat is hydrated is a hydrocarbon so again they're just they're just chains of carbon right amino acids are just chains of carbon uh hormones chains of carbon you just can't have that much carbon in your blood you got to maintain a certain viscosity so it gets stored somewhere okay when we release that fat beta oxidation is what we call when we break apart that long chain right the end of beta oxidation that that carbon is attached to two oxygens and you breathe it out so like 87% of the carbon you lose, you lose from your breath. It could be from glycogen. It could be from protein. It could be from fat. But that's where the body weight goes, out your mouth, right? The, non-water, the water weight, you pee out, right? But the actual non-water weight of your body, you lose by breathing. That's where it goes. This is your exhaust pipe, right? So does any of it have to do with sweating? That's just the water weight and like it just basically that's how you lose water and salt. Okay. In your yeah, there's no not a lot of carbon in your um, in your sweat. The the largest loss of carbon and we're talking two to three hundred grams a day, so a third to a half pound of carbon you breathe out every day. Yeah. So basically, based on that, if you fast for twenty four hours, so no carbon's coming in and you're not dead, so you're actually breathing, I'm guaranteeing that you will lose between a third to a half pound of non-water body weight, so either some combination of fat, carbohydrate, and protein, when you fast. This makes complete sense now that you're saying it. I mean, we're breathing out CO2. I just never thought of it like that. Where did the carbon come from? (laughs) 
And so when now we do is a measurement called a respiratory quotient or RQ for short, because you don't want me to stumble over the word respiratory over and over. <laughs> RQ is a measurement of oxygen in and carbon dioxide out that tells you the percentage of fat you burn. Or in other words, if I measure your RQ, I can tell you of the carbon that's leaving your body, what percentage of it used to be fat. Now, if you're fasting, so you're not eating any fat, but I'm telling you, 80% of the carbon coming out of your body was once part of a fat. You can say, huh, I'm losing body fat because that was the only source of fat available. And what's, what's the difference between carbon from fat and carbon that's not from fat? Like It actually has to do with, oh, with the carbon not from fat would be carbohydrate or protein. And you, okay. you know, typically, we're always going to be losing a little bit of protein whether you're fasting or not. Um, and then the, the carbohydrate, again, you're going to be losing a little bit. But the longer you fast, the more that carbon is coming from your body fat. As, so as your RQ, which is this measurement, starts to go down, which means the amount of fat you're losing is going up, this just means a greater amount of that carbon that you're breathing out came from your actual body fat stores. So again, on hour 23 of a fast, if you haven't eaten in 23 hours and your RQ is saying, yeah, you're losing almost 100% fat and you're breathing still because you're not dead, I can guarantee you you're losing body fat. It's the only possible spot that that carbon came from. So when you break down nutrition and physiology just down to where the carbon go, it's really easy. Because you can argue with me all day that a calorie is not a calorie. But you can't tell me there's a different carbon in protein than there is in fat than there is in carbon because other than the small amount of radioactive carbon in the world, it's all the same carbon and that carbon has a known atomic weight. And if we're going to say, actually, no, there's multiple carbons with different weights, well, then we've just screwed all of science. Like not just nutrition, but like all of science has to start over. But we know the atomic weight of carbon, which means we know the weight of CO2, which means if we know how much you're breathing out, I can tell you exactly how much weight you've lost, which is like a third to a half pound. Now, you're going to lose more when you're, when you're fasting because you lose water weight as well. You do pee when you're fasting, right? And so when you stop fasting, you're going to gain some weight back because you're going to drink something, right? But that carbon loss is gone. And the only way to sort of replace it is to eat enough carbon that it gets stored again. And okay, awesome. So <laughs> I know I, I the, will. I, the, I like it. The, uh, the, the, the procedure, um, or test yeah. that was, that was done. Um, what was the name of it? Like if someone wanted to get that done, respiratory quotient is literally a typically about a 15 minute period. You've got to be really relaxed and sedentary. So you're lying around, you get a mask hooked up to your face. Um, you, cause I've done this, you'd have to shave because otherwise you get some loss through here. Oh. I know. Right. So, <laughs> and they just measured the amount of carbon dioxide that you're breathing out versus the amount of oxygen you're absorbing. And those ratios can tell us actually not only tell you how much fat versus carbohydrate and protein that you're burning as a percentage, but they also use that to approximate your metabolic rate in calories which now you know is, is kind of pointless. So what you'd really want to know is how much carbon dioxide would I actually breathe out in an hour? <clears throat> and that tells you basically how much weight you could expect to lose in a 24-hour fast. This is cool. I, I've had a good amount of clients, uh, consulting clients, do the bioenergy testing um, right. that, that Dr. Frank Schallenberger has. And, and I think there's a similar component to it, right? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. And he can tell you, you know, where you want to be exercising, you know, where's your, your fat burning rate, heart rate, where's your, uh, aerobic training rate. And if you stay between those two, it's supposedly has the greatest optimize that ratio. You're trying yeah. to as much of those carbons are coming from fat as possible. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Beautiful. That's, that's actually a test that I still need to get out and do myself, but I've looked at dozens of them and it's, um, it's pretty handy. So were you seeing you're, you're, you're a grad student, you've chucked out all this stuff that at first wasn't. Yeah. So I'm seeing all these things that are traditionally assumed to be markers of good health, right? So weight loss generally for, for the average North American population, moving us more towards a healthy weight range is a good thing we see uh, the decrease in waist circumference. That's a very good marker of overall health. We see improved insulin sensitivity, very good marker. We see a decrease in inflammation, again, good marker. So what you're basically doing is this tallied checklist of things we believe to be associated with good health. And I'm just going through going like, well, this is a really easy way to knock off like 12 different things right away. Just and what, whatever you're eating and stop. Right. <laughs> what got me thinking is, so from a psychological point of view, because I've, I've dieted before, I've done like a bodybuilding show before, and I know what it feels like to be on a diet for like 12, 16 weeks straight. You know at some point you're going to mess up, right? So it's this slow, inevitable march to failure. And then when you mess up, you mess up big yeah. and you start over. But what you're doing is negative, negatively reinforcing. So once you've messed up, you already know you can't die. Be like, I already, I've already screwed this up. I'm going to try again, but I'm probably going to mess up. And then what happens is four or five weeks later, you're stopping your face full of donuts and they weren't on your exact schedule. So you're like, God, I messed up again. <laughs> yeah. Then you got to diet again because you promised yourself you do this show. So now you can diet even stricter and it just, it spirals. Yeah. What I realized with fasting, when you condense all that dieting in one little short period of time, is that if you started fasting like today at two and you finish tomorrow at two and you're like, I did that. Yeah, I, I finished the fast. Like I, I'm done. I'm over. I crossed the finish line. Awesome. Pilon says they don't have to do this for another three days. In three days, I'm going to do it again. But I already know I've done it successfully once. So I'm probably going to be able to do it. Then your next fast, let's say you do it again. And it was, it was good. Like you maybe got a little dicey around 20 hours, but you push through. You're like, I can do this fasting thing. That's a way better positive reinforcement than saying, well, it's January 1st. I'm going to start dieting again. I'm probably going to fail by this weekend, right? Like it's, it's a different deal. A for effort. <laughs> All the benefits that you associate with any form of diet and you're just squishing it into one small period of time, that, it's really hard to beat that. And then when you and I, like we talked about earlier, all the mindfulness that comes from just a period of breaking your eating habits, if you can transition what you learn there to when you are eating, you really set yourself up for success because a lot, a lot of the health, we can talk about the markers of the insulin levels or blood sugar or growth hormone, but you have to look at the emotional and psychological components, which we already sort of talked about the wholeness, is learning to really free yourself from the fact that every time you go to pick up your kids from school, you pass by that one donut shop and you stop to get them a donut and you one too, because that's your habit. So when you, when you do that drive and you're fasting and you're like, oh, I can't get me one because I'm fasting. And you're like, why am I getting a donut when I just ate lunch? You know, you, you start breaking these cycles. Yeah. That's a really big part of the health benefit of fasting. Like I know everybody wants to talk about, like you and I talk about growth hormone and stuff like that. But these, um, how you relate to the environment and how you relate to how you eat 
is just as important. It's, it's, I think it's more important. And I, I was the opposite. I used to just get so consumed and go down the rabbit holes of the science and the nerdery. And I'm like, it doesn't mean anything if our beliefs aren't there, if our awareness isn't there. It's like, you're, you're, you're putting the cart before the horse or you're, 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 you're stuck in a loop. Yeah. I like to say that, you know, eating responsibly isn't about having a plan on a spreadsheet you're following perfectly. Eating responsibly is what you do when all of a sudden that plan goes awry and you're sitting there in front of a dozen donuts at a party. Like that's, that's eating responsibly is when you're like, you know what? I'm an adult. I can have one donut. I'm not going to eat them all. Right. Like I'm, I'm okay. Whereas anybody can, not anybody, but a lot of people can just say for the next eight weeks, I'm going to eat off of a spreadsheet. I'm going to make all my food on Sunday. And it doesn't matter on Friday that I'm eating five day old chicken breast and broccoli. I'm just going to do it. Right. Exactly. This is a bit of a different approach where you're just like, no, I'm just going to learn to eat in a way that allows me to have a body that's roughly the shape and size that's associated with good health. And that's it. If you want 8%, 7%, 6% body fat, maybe you have to go a bit more extreme and we can talk about whether that's even healthy. But just the vast majority of people who are just like, I just kind of want to look good. I don't want to win a giant contest, but I kind of want to look good. I just kind of want to hate myself a little less. <laughs> no, I, don't, I, I just want to be the dad who, when someone's like, Hey, did, um, did the kids want to go come over for a pool party? Do you want to come? I'm like, yeah, I do. Yeah, I, do. <laughs> I want to be the guy who's in the pool in his shirt. That, that's it. You know, the, I'm 40 going on 41. Right? A four pack looks great. I don't need to have an eight pack. and be. <laughs> I'm not impressing anybody. And, and yeah, I mean, you were, you were joking about fat around your stomach, but the reality is like, you're pretty jacked and, uh, and, and uh, I mean, um, in good shape. So this is, this is working for you. Um, what are we seeing about the way that the body responds hormonally to intermittent fasting? And then, and then from there, I'd be interested in, in the different types and how you recommend doing it versus like the 16, eight and all that. But let's start with hormones. So for hormones, uh, the main thing we see and the most important thing is insulin goes down. As insulin's going down, growth hormone goes up. And growth hormone is just a grossly, poorly named hormone. We call it growth hormone because it's involved in the growth of, of children getting to their full stature. But for adults, it, it has obviously more than one job in the body because that would be ridiculous. It's also responsible for releasing fat from your fat stores, right? Uh-huh. So when gro- if you were to just get insulin down, but you were to block growth hormone with a growth hormone blocking drug in a trial, you would not see the same amount of fat loss. In fact, because you wouldn't see the same amount of fat loss, and something has to replace that fat because you're still breathing, you see an increased protein loss. So growth hormone going up increases the amount of fat you're burning and protects your protein stores. Now, insulin going down and growth hormone going up happens to different degrees in different people. But the more weight you lose, the more you fast, the better that happens. Insulin goes down quicker, growth hormone goes up higher. Those are your main markers uh, of fat loss happening. You, you sort of got the two keepers of the gate, right? The insulin's the guy who doesn't let anybody out. The growth hormone's the guy who's like, well, insulin's gone and I got the key to open this door, right? So that's what gets the, kind of the fat moving. The other thing we see is um, in a 24-hour period, if you measure from morning to morning, you don't really see any change in testosterone in men. 
which is a good thing. We, we want to keep that kind of at a nice, healthy spot. Right. Um, we see markers of uh, inflammation decreasing. We see slight drops in leptin. So we're not. Is that, is that CRP we're looking at? Yeah, yeah. You look at C-reactive protein, you look at a lot of the interleukins. They're kind of hard, uh, the interleukins, because some are pro-inflammatory, some are anti-inflammatory. We see the pro ones go down, right? Okay. Uh, we see leptin go down transiently, so we're not talking like a leptin deficiency, just, just, a, just a small, nice little drop. But in general, you see everything that would relate to uh, a decrease in fat mass or allowing for a decrease in fat mass as well as the beneficial things that, that lead to a decrease in inflammation, or I guess inflammation potential if you want to get really technical. But those are the main things you want to measure, and those are the main things we found in our studies of any fasting from about 12 hours to 72. These are the sort of things that are happening. Nice. And how... Um there's a lot of people that believe detoxification is a myth, um, which is interesting perspective, but, um, what, what evidence do we have? Um, and what are we seeing in terms of the body's detoxification processes? How are those impacted when we fast? Well, okay. From a list, if you just play a logic game and you imagine your main detox center, which is your liver and your liver is also involved in just about all the digestion going on and now you're not digesting, you've kind of freed up your main detoxification organ to do its job. So a lot of fasting involves just getting out of the way and letting your body do what it's supposed to do, and detox would be one of them. Um, one of the main things you actually truly want to detox from your body, which is lipopolysaccharide or endotoxin, we are seeing that endotoxin levels tend to go down during a fast, which again is a very good thing, right? We do not want a buildup of endotoxins in the body by any means. Is so, that coming from pathogens or from our metabolism? Uh, it's okay. So you have a certain amount of grand negative bacteria in your gut. Yeah. Um, either having a leaky gut or just a high intake of saturated fat and or simple sugar will tend to push lipopolysaccharide into your body. Um, there are things that protect against that, like polyphenols from fruit. But considering the fact that most of us, our main fruit intake is like tomato sauce on a pizza, like we're not giant fruit eaters, that we don't really have that protective mechanism anymore. So we go to McDonald's, we get a giant saturated fat and sugar bomb of food. And it's not like then we order, oh, and I'll have like an apple and some berries to go with that. We just get a Coke, right? So make yeah. it worse. <clears throat> so we tend to see that it really helps push like polysaccharide into your body. Okay. Now, if you're doing that three to four times a day, which is which sounds ridiculous, but a lot of people that's, that's their diet, right? Is some sort of quick breakfast cereal and then fast food a couple times a day. You're just stepwise increasing the polysaccharide levels in your body. And then since most people eat right before they go to bed, and then right when they wake up and they only maybe sleep for six hours because Netflix, right? They never have a time for that to go back to baseline. So you're just constantly bringing it up. So a nice 24 hour fast, a nice, like, you just stop. Let's that kind of come back down to a more respectable level. Yeah. Um, I'm interested too, because like, I think perhaps my logic's off, but I'd always associated growth hormone as an anabolic pathway, right? Like when we do things like consume uh, cal calorie surplus, um, things that things that you know activate the the, the mTOR pathway, uh, which is a growth pathway, and also can like you know if someone has cancer, you don't want to turn on these anabolic pathways. So like typically, 
an anabolic pathway and a longevity pathway are inversely related, right? Yeah. How, how, when we stop eating, do we see growth hormone increase? Okay. So again, there's a couple of things. There is a, a, at times there's a disassociation between the mTOR pathways and growth, right? We, we've seen that a number of times. If mTOR is going to be on, you generally want to give it a reason to be on, which means that you're, you're in the gym, right? You, yeah, yeah. Some sort of growth. You don't want it on for no reason. Um, you know, I don't really know. All I know is that when you're fasting, uh, almost every study shows that growth hormone goes up. So again, hormones are part of a spider web system in your body and yeah. at different times play different roles and do different things. So in this case, the main role of growth hormone, uh, actually, no, let me, let me rephrase this. Growth hormone in the absence of insulin has a role of uh, releasing fat from fat stores. Growth hormone combined with insulin has a growth promoting effect. So um, again, hormones, cancer? Uh, not always cancer, sometimes muscle growth. Okay. Right? And in some forms of cancer, not all cancers are responding to, to all hormones, right? So gotcha. what you're really looking at is the things you, it's hard to explain, there are hormones you want elevated at the right times and hormones you don't want elevated at the wrong, well, I butchered that. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, it, makes, it makes, it's mel melatonin and cortisol, right? Yeah, those, right <laughs> those are screwed up, you're in trouble. Exactly. Right back to your original discussion, what we were talking about the wholeness and you with your environment. This is why studying hormones by themselves, as opposed to how it is with every other hormone, can be a mistake, right? So you're almost sitting there with a, like a fuse box in your house and being like, hey, this one's here, this one has to be here, this one has to be over here, but this one has to be on, this one has to be off, and that's the secret code to, to make this work. My kids have a, a game called, like I think it's called Code Breaker or something like that, yeah. and that's all it is, right? Is like which ones are on or off, to unleash the code, hormones are the same way. It's not just having one hormone elevated or unelevated, unless we're talking super physiological, like testosterone injections. Yeah. It's got, you want this one high, well, these two are low, this one's high, and this one's medium. And that's the secret code to get this effect you're looking for. So with fasting, it's a combination of growth hormone going up as insulin is going down, probably has something to do with norepinephrine and how it increases. Like there is an entire like use word hormonal milieu, which always sounds really weird. It's actually harder to say than it sounds. It's just a fun word to say in general. Exactly. <laughs> that's what you're looking for is a certain code breaker type blueprint where you're like, and that's what releases the fat. Yeah. Which is why, um, for instance, with, with, uh, you get weird effects when you try to break those codes. When bodybuilders inject growth hormone, so they're injecting growth hormone not in a fasted state, but in a fed state, one of the common things that happens is carpal tunnel. And you're like, why, why, why do you get carpal tunnel? It's a weird thing. But you're, it's a high growth hormone during a time where it shouldn't be high or when the codes off and other hormones are also high, right? So you really need the full flux to make it work. Ah, and, and it seems like in that example to potentially overgeneralize the wrong code, the wrong combination, right? Where you're now injecting exogenous growth hormone in a fed state, the wrong code could be pro-inflammatory. And yeah. then, you know, you've got your hands locking up and you're, you're 35 years old. Exactly. Exactly. Same thing. Um, you look at like a lot of hormones have diurnal rhythms, et cetera, right? Like test is highest in the morning, right? So like if you were on test replacement injecting tests, you'd probably want to do it in the morning. Right. right? You wouldn't want to do it when it's 
low at night. You would make the argument, you're like, yeah, but then it's high all the time and I'm getting jacked. But if you just kind of want to, you know, be healthy and then not develop weird diseases, you may want to follow these normal cycles that we have recorded. And, and be open to the idea that there could be a number of purposes for that cycle beyond our current level of awareness. Yeah, and, and our bias, right? So it's like, well, why does test go up here? Well, because you get jacked. You want to get jacked. That's jacked, 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 right? And it's like, no, actually, test has a lot of other stuff. You're like, oh, yeah, uh, sperm. And that's it, right? People don't ask these sort of like biases, what they're interested in until something happens to them. And then they're almost like, wait, no test diabetes, right? Like you get connections going on in other directions. So we are very biased in that way. But yeah, there is these milus and these secret codes that you really kind of want to get right. And so if fasting, just the act of not eating affects a large range of hormones, but I'm not purposely trying to intervene Right. Like, cause we have this, um, obsession with intervening on our bodies all the time. If I'm just like, no, I'm just going to not eat and let my body do what it's going to do. My trust is that that hormonal profile is the accurate profile for that situation. Beautiful. And if, if I remember correctly, I mean, I, I purchased and, and read your book, um, a few years ago and loved it. You have a lot of this science in there where if people want to see the quantified increase in, in yeah. growth hormone. It like has to be there, the science, because remember I wrote Aesop Eat in 2000, I wrote it in 2006, published in 2007. So yeah. the entire book is summed up as once or twice a week, fast for 24 hours. The other 300 pages are the defense of that because I knew I was going to get attacked on what about growth hormone? What about insulin? What about testosterone? Or what about this? So the rest of the book is, is informative Right. But the actual application is, is once, twice a week. I want you to fast for 24 hours, never a whole day. I want that fast divided between two days. So I want you to sleep through the hardest part of the fast. If you're finding the fast difficult, I'd like you to switch your start and stop times. Instead of fasting noon to noon, maybe try 5 p.m. to 5 p.m. You'll find the right time for you. That's the whole book. That's why I suck at sales, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, see, I think like I was, when I bought, when I bought your book, I still knew that that was the basic idea, but I wanted the science. Yeah. You know, that was, that was a big reason. So I'm like, I want to see these studies because the, some of the objections that we're talking about here is, are very common, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, it is full of very interesting stuff on that matter. But as you and I talked about before, the, the interest doesn't change what actually happens when you fast. So yeah. the, the basic practice of it doesn't change. The rest of it is just for interest sake and for you to be able to have an intellectual conversation with someone who's telling you your fasting is bad. Right. So if, if you're listening to this episode and you're wondering what is the takeaway, it's apply a 24 hour fast one to two times a week. Yeah. You can start at noon to noon. You can do four to four. It doesn't really matter. Find what works for you. Do yeah. it and don't get bogged with all of the uh, all of the hundreds of variations of fasting out there that yeah. essentially achieve the same thing. Brad, why don't you do like a 16-8? Or... I'm not a regimented type of guy. So I like the flexibility. I like, I like eating. Man, do I love eating. Me too. Uh, <laughs> I like to take the occasional break from eating. If yeah. you're fasting, you know, 16-8, Technically, you're taking the occasional break from fasting to get some meals in and then go back to fasting. Um, I've got a 10-year-old. I've got an 8-year-old. I'm on the road a lot. 
Um, I live out in the boonies, so when someone wants to visit me, I'm all in because I spend all day by myself in the house going crazy, right? So I want to be able, if you're like, hey, people, I'm in Toronto, I want to get together for lunch, I'm like, I will drive to Toronto to see you. It's an hour and a half, but I will make it and we'll have lunch, right? I'm not going to be the guy who's like, no, Anthony, it's, it's cool and all you're coming in, but I actually fast till four, so <laughs> together for a meal i'm like no dude i, I got a donut place i'm gonna take you to and we're gonna crush it right like, yeah. <laughs> flexibility but at the same time when i'm on a roll and i'm writing and i'm like i'm gonna spend all day today writing and i haven't fasted in a couple days i'm just gonna fast today i got no plans but i'm busy which is perfect i'm gonna get it done and that means tomorrow at saturday uh oh hey my brother invited me up and he's gonna make me something to eat he probably wouldn't because he's cheap. He'd buy pizza. But, uh, right? but I'm going to go and eat his food because he never turned down free food. So I like that flexibility. I don't want to be regimented into a style that actually starts to make me not enjoy life. That's just not the point. Yeah, it's, it's more the opposite is the point. Like we do all this health stuff so that we enjoy our life more, so that quality yeah. of life goes up. I'm trying to hack the system and get the same weight loss results with more enjoyment, right? That's yeah, I, I dig it. I can appreciate that. Um, what's, what's another hack that you've applied? So like, let's say your, your eat, stop, eat system is one of them. What's yeah. one other thing that you're like, I'm probably going to have this as a part of my weekly routine for life because it's like, it's a minimalist hack that really helps with energy or fat loss or just quality of life overall. I'll give you two. I'll give you two. Yes. Bonus. My, my polyphenol, my berry intake right now is, is through the roof and it's, it, I've, it's going to do the whole, I really feel different, but I've noticed a difference, right? So I, I do believe that a large polyphenol intake, a large berry intake is missing from a lot of people's diets. Um, you can have a cup of blueberries, a cup of strawberries and a, a cup of blackberries I mean, you're looking at a total of like 40 grams of sugar. So you could even, if you were super hardcore keto, almost fit that in, right? So yeah. that's one. The other one, which I think is huge, is I monitor my CO2 levels in my house. Um, there's a direct correlation between the amount of carbon dioxide that you're breathing in and your fatigue, lethargy, lethargy and, and hunger, um, headaches, and concentration. And since my whole livelihood depends on my brain work and me writing stuff that some people find remotely interesting, it's really important for you to make sure that my CO2 levels in the house are lower than 600 parts per million. And you have blown away at the times that this house has been like 1560 as the hundred, so a thousand six hundred parts per million, which is way too hot. But as in Canada, our houses are really airtight, right? It's freezing cold outside, so we want to keep the heat in. But that means we have no fresh air coming in and out of the house. So you got to make sure your, your furnace filters are clean and you got to make sure that you're in a low CO2 environment um, constantly. So that's one of the bigger hacks I've, I've really put into place that I'll always keep in place. That's, I love that. What's, what do you use to monitor those CO2 levels? I use uh, a CO2 meter from CO2meter.com. And despite my constant bugging of them. I don't get any sort of kickback from mentioning them all the time, but, uh, it's just a little meter. It sits on your, on a table. And it just gives you a, a right out. I don't actually have it in the office. I had it upstairs in the kitchen. Otherwise I'd show it to you, but it's, you know, it's maybe a $300 piece of equipment that gives you a lot of peace of mind and really makes you learn like, like how the CO2 levels change in your house. But I want to constantly keep that as low as possible. And, and when you see that it's gotten high, what do you do? This is the best hack ever. I open a window. <laughs> yeah. I swear, because the CO2 levels outside will always be better in your house. At any given time, 
There should not be a 24 hour period that goes by where you haven't had a window open your house for at least 15 minutes. It doesn't take, you don't have to open every window and, and you know, sing sound and music. I mean, you got to crack a window or two yeah. and the amazing difference it makes. Right. But that's the feeling you get when you go away on vacation or you go for a long walk outside and those like, ideas that come in the lack of exhaustion and you know, the, I feel so revitalized. So much of that just has to do with the exposure to lower CO2 levels because you're not trapped in an office with 40 other people breathing the same 3,000 parts per million CO2. Yeah, it's, it's the same thing with the gyms, man. We're trapped in a bubble breathing recycled air. Yeah, it's horrible. So yeah, you monitor, you see, just because you can't see it doesn't mean it doesn't count. That's the biggest takeaway. Next to fasting, the biggest takeaway I can give you is just because you can't see it doesn't mean it doesn't count. Those CO2 levels matter. And the feeling of exhaustion or the headache you got that you're blaming on the red wine or the cheese you ate or the too much carbs could very well be from the CO2 levels in your house. The fact that you had the best intention to go work out when you got home and made dinner for the kids, you got tired and laid in the couch the rest of the day, it might not be because of the stress at work. It might be because of the CO2 levels in your house. The fact that when you get home, you can't stop sort of picking up food from the kitchen isn't because you're a carb addict. It may be because of the CO2 levels in your house. So just measure them. It's, it's not a big deal. If they're high, you can fix it by opening a window. It's like the best hack in the world. Um, I, I dig it. I'm going to pick one up more so out of curiosity because, I mean, um, opening the windows, you could do that without it, just assuming. But having that that tracked will bring more awareness to it. and To track how you feel to the CO2 levels. Yeah. I'm sensitive to it. My wife is like... The minute she's pulling a headache, right? It's either because she doesn't want me to touch her or because the CO2 levels are high. It's one of the two. And it's like, I can basically tell just by how all of a sudden she's getting tired. And especially it's like when the kids have been running around the house, expelling that CO2, right? Yeah. Oh, wait a second. And I sure enough, I look at it and I'm like 1200. All right, let's, let's open a window. And it makes opening windows like 15 minutes later, she feels better. Like it's, it's that quick. So it, it'll be interesting too, much in the same way we were discussing nutrition from, you know, from a biochemistry standpoint, yeah. years down the road, we know we've got these negative ions in the air, especially in nature. Yeah. And that is going to, that's going to correspond with, you know, lowering CO2 levels because you've got higher oxygen. It'd be like, how much of this is the CO2? How much of it's negative ions? I don't know if it'll be a hundred or 200 years before we can figure all that out, but it'll be interesting to ask. Plants in your house. Like most of our grandparents had plants in the house. Yes. That's a good one. I think I have a, no, zero. I got zero right now. And I, I never wrote a book about this. And I know I should have plants in the house, but I, they die. But yeah, you should <laughs> probably have some plants in your house, at least in your bedroom. Like it's just, just learn how to keep a plant in your house. It's not like open a window, have some plants, you're golden. I'm going to, I'm going to buy some more. I lost, I lost some on the move from Chicago to, uh, Florida. Brad, this has been awesome, man. For, for people that want to get your book, Eat, Stop, Eat, um, fully endorsed by me. I mean, it stood the test of time where there's been a lot of like flash in the pan fasting uh, protocols that have, that have come out and just don't work as well and don't have the same scientific support. Um, we'll put a link in the show notes to, uh, to Eat, Stop, Eat, and maybe you, know, you and I will work out something if, if, if you do that yeah. for them, um, like a discount or whatever. And then where else can they keep up with like what you're working on and cool projects and fun stuff like that? So bradpilon.com you're going to see a very narcissistic narcissistic trend here bradpilon.com you get kind of like a full length rambling from me yeah uh, on twitter which is at bradpilon you tend to find me trying to be witty in 140 characters or less 
<laughs> and then on Instagram, which is again, Brad Pilon, uh, I'm starting to do those sort of live feed stuff. I'll talk about my workouts. Otherwise you get to see, I don't know, the kids skating on the hockey rink, that kind of stuff. So depending on what you want, there's a source for it, but, um, I write for a living and I ramble for a living. So you're going to find healthy ramblings somewhere. Beautiful, man. Well, Brad, this has been awesome. It, uh, yeah, we, we went a lot deeper than I expected. We went and, uh, <laughs> yeah, we went everywhere. <laughs> Hopefully we brought it back enough to, uh, we, we at least gave them a minute and a half implementation protocol. It's good. Fasting is good and do it in, in, in this simple fashion. Um, I actually got to run to uh, get my blood drawn. <laughs> nice. I need to go pick up the kids from school. So almost the same thing. <laughs> Very nice, man. Well, great hanging out. I appreciate you. And uh, we'll talk soon, buddy. Absolutely, man. This episode is brought to you by the Earth Pulse PEMF Sleep on Command device. If you're looking for better sleep, enhanced mitochondrial function, improved performance, and accelerated recovery, I highly recommend you check out the Earth Pulse. Within the first week of sleeping on my Earth Pulse, I was seeing improved exercise performance, delayed onset of fatigue, I noticed more energy during my workouts, and I was able to break the three-minute mark on a static breath hold. I now sleep on my Earth Pulse PEMF, which stands for Pulsed Electromagnetic Field device every single night. I have the one that has two coils. One goes under your pillow, one goes under your mattress, and I take it with me when I travel. I don't leave home without it. Every time I use my Earth Pulse, I wake up feeling clearer, calmer, and more energized. And I can tell the difference if I skip using it for a few nights. What's even cooler is it's incredibly easy to use. I just put it in manual mode, set it to 9.6 hertz, and about 15 minutes before my alarm is going to go off, and that's it. It's very easy, just a couple buttons, and the performance-enhancing benefits are profound. To learn more about the Earth Pulse and check out some of the scientific literature, you can go to biohackingsecrets.com forward slash Earth Pulse. That's biohackingsecrets.com forward slash E-A-R-T-H-P-U-L-S-E.